0: it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends well it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human buckle up because this might get uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robell and Whitney Lordson welcome to part 2 of this story about Jason's ayahuasca journey if you haven't listened to part 1 yet it is the previous episode you can find that along with anything that we talked about such as resources and books and videos at com. that's where we have all the show notes for these episodes w e l l e v a t r. w e l l e v a t r.com and we're going to pick up where we left off but first what is that sound do you hear that sound
1: sounds like a baby darth vader it does it's something from the out
0: is it outside
1: yeah it sounds
0: like construction or something it, you know like it's, that?
1: it sounded like a very like baby like <sighs> Like, like a tiny Darth Vader. And now it's gone.
0: Yeah. Since I just mentioned the show notes at wellevator.com, something I'm going to add in there for this episode and perhaps for the previous episode as well is this book that I'm reading by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. I'm listening to the audio book, which is read by Michael Pollan. And it is wonderful. And I wish that I had listened to it in its entirety before we started this conversation because... I am getting very educated on the use of these plant medicines and drugs, as some people refer to them as, and just the things that they can do and the benefits of them. So in the whole history of it, it's really fascinating. What I didn't realize is that a lot of these drugs and medicines weren't really used or didn't really become popular or prevalent until the 50s, I think, which mm-hmm. is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. That was not in either of our lifetimes, Jason or I, but definitely parents, grandparents. And it's so fascinating how I think we can lose sight of how little time certain things have been around. So I suppose we have to keep that in mind when we when we talk about how much we understand something because if it's only been around for 50 or 60 years, 70 years maybe, that's such a short period of time, mm-hmm. you know? And all of these misconceptions, misunderstandings, misuses, perhaps is just not enough time to really get clear on the benefits of things. So yeah. keeping an open mind is I think incredibly important and, and that's something that Michael Pollan talks about in this book is just how perceptions have changed about things like ayahuasca and LSD and peyote and all these different tools that we can use for our brains.
1: Yeah, it's really cool, actually. Um, it's on my phone, which I would need to grab if, if it melds into the conversation. I stumbled upon some research articles regarding ayahuasca, and it's- In abil- between
0: episode one and this correct. episode? Correct, okay. correct.
1: And its ability- that they've looked at in certain research studies to overcome alcohol addiction, tobacco addiction, certain physical addictions. And they've seen dramatic improvements in the amount of, um, the rates rather, of, of addiction going down in people who've consistently used this. Now, of course, we don't have like massive control groups in the U.S. So a lot of these studies were from South America, people that have been ritualistically or religiously using ayahuasca in ceremony or tied to certain churches or religious practices. So, certainly, I think if we look at the efficacy of things like ayahuasca or LSD or MDMA, it's encouraging to see that more research is being done. But certainly, you know, if you compare it to, say, certain pharmaceutical research, which in some cases, there's not a lot of research with pharmaceuticals either, they just let them out on the market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's encouraging to see that. I read recently also that Johns Hopkins University and other American universities are now getting funding to conduct research into psychedelic drugs and their effects on depression, PTSD, addiction, and things like that. So I'm very bolstered by the fact that, as you said, things are changing where people are looking at these as potential legal mainstream options to help people with their mental and psychological health. I think that's awesome.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I remember very vividly where we left off in part one.
1: Diarrhea. It was diarrhea. It's very vivid. Yeah, yeah so you definitely I don't.
0: You don't want to miss that part of that episode. <laughs> so make sure that you listen to it. And this episode, I think this episode will be could be good as a standalone, but it really works as a complement to the first one. Absolutely. And this is our first two parter as well with the podcast, which is kind of cool. Yeah. We should do this more often. We'd love your feedback. You can leave us reviews over at iTunes and other uh, platforms. You can comment on the website at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we're very curious what you think about topics like this and, and the format of the entire podcast. So with no further ado, let's dive into what happened after the diarrhea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well- The purging that I was experiencing during the ceremony was pretty consistent Um, once. And again, I can't estimate time in this experience because it felt felt to me like it was the longest night of my life.
0: Really? Yeah. Can we pause for a moment? Yeah,
1: the longest night of my life. The
0: funniest thing that has come to mind now and also when you were talking about this last time. Do you want to share that quick story when you got really high? And I came over and you were like crawling on your hands and knees in your house.
1: Why do you want me to share that story? Oh, Because it's funny? It's It's
0: funny. And also you didn't know when that was going to end. You were so in your head in that moment. And it probably seems so trivial now after ayahuasca. Extremely trivial. (laughs)
1: Extremely trivial. But
0: that's like likely something many listeners have experienced or understand, you know, given that marijuana is becoming more and more acceptable throughout the world. I think it's something that a lot of people have, have used in their life yeah. in one way or another, or at least they know somebody who's used it. Well, certainly, and whatever. So what it's I, very relatable, that story, and also very amusing to me.
1: Okay, well, whatever, I mean, clearly, amongst many other activities and choices in my life, my political career has now been haberdashed completely by sharing this. Is, like, that tr-
0: remember, is that still true?
1: People are so, their anuses are so tight with the stuff. Like, hey, yo, that one time, he admitted to smoking dope. We can't elect him to be president. And, like, well, even the they did that to is Elon like, Musk. GTFO.
0: You it's know kind mean? of funny, right? It's like, like, we're
1: they- all human beings. And, like, the pe- anyway, I feel like a lot of the people condemning other people for their life choices are often doing the very thing they condemn behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a or pretty worse. consistent, or worse. So let's just not judge each other for our choices, like live and let live, especially if we're not harming other beings in the process. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so so funny because we hear all these stories of of people in power sexually abusing others. I mean, that to me is really awful, but yet it almost seems like A lot of people view drugs as just as worse or something. Oh, for sure. Which is really bizarre to me.
1: Well, it kind of goes back to, again, if you, the listener, want to listen to part one of this, which we highly behoove you to do that. I went on a a mini rant about how psychedelics are often classified as schedule one narcotics like cocaine and heroin. But this, we, we can't just lump... We can't just lump extremely damaging illicit drugs in the same category as entheogens and psychedelics that do have, I believe, some sort of physiological, mental, spiritual healing properties. But the federal government is like, let's just lump them all in the same category. Mm. So I hope there is more reform. And I do believe there's going to be more reform in that regard. But back Mm -hmm. to the story, because you want me to tell before we get into Yeah, just briefly. A few years ago, this was probably 2015. Yep. I was turned on to these organic raw coconut macaroon edibles that I had obtained from a local dispensary. They were raw, vegan, made with coconut oil, super delicious. They were chocolate. And I miscalculated my dosage in terms of the milligrams of THC. And I essentially did the math wrong. So what I thought was a, a normal dose for me, which is usually like in this case, I think it was maybe 30 milligrams. I read the package wrong, and I ended up taking 60 milligrams. Now,
0: oh, my.
1: for I, context I, I
0: For people that because some people, even if they've, they've tried marijuana before, may not even understand milligrams, for me, that's a relatively recent understanding that I've had. Yeah. And for me, I can have two to five milligrams of edibles and feel pretty good. If I have close to 10, I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. So I cannot even imagine (laughs) what 60, and you're sure it was 60?
1: Oh, I'm damn sure. Oh,
0: I mean, I have a lot of compassion for you because I feel like the last time I had a really intense experience on edibles, it was probably between five to 10 milligrams. Wow. So
1: okay, <laughs> fair enough. Wow. So, no, so
0: Quick question though. Yeah. I know the difference in my body between two to five. Like that's when I feel good. I can function. I I'm I'm in like I feel solid. I feel like I'm enjoying myself and relax and all of that. If I'm between five to ten, that's starting to feel uncomfortable because maybe I. Feel a little bit less in control, or my brain's a little foggy, or physically, I'm just like I feel like things slow down a bit more. I think when the last times I had between five to ten milligrams, I went to a party. I think with you actually, it's a few years ago, Jason. Air pollution. Yeah, and I remember I all I wanted to do was just sit down on the couch and be left alone. It was to me that was very unpleasant. I think I got a little nauseous. It yeah. was just not good. Yeah. Do you really think? how much, or I should say, how much of a difference is there between 10 milligrams and 60? And is it that at a certain point you could have, like the difference between how you feel at 10, is it that drastically different how you feel at 30, 60, et cetera?
1: For my body, it is. Absolutely. And, I, and I've and i experimented not only with THC, but more often I take CBD for anxiety, mm-hmm. for mental balance. So I'm, I'm really big into, I think I meant, may have mentioned this on part one, where I have a a sleep tincture that I take before bed now, which mm-hmm. is it's a one to one CBD THC, but it also has chamomile, elderflower, skullcap, like a lot of relaxing, yeah. calming herbs.
0: And that'll and so- be listed in the show notes at wellevader com if you want to check that out. Because you know, even if you don't want THC, mm-hmm. which is associated with marijuana, you know, CBD is a whole nother story, which we've talked about in other episodes. Yeah. And anyways. You know, if you're listening and thinking, I don't want to do drugs, but I'm kind of curious just about other people's experiences. We do encourage people to experiment with CBD because that doesn't have the psychoactive side of it. So we'll put that in the show notes. Okay, so you've experimented a lot with the the ratios of milligrams there. I guess like yeah, what I don't know because I don't I don't know what the max amount I've ever had as an edible has been. I just remember a few times that I was more aware, but in the past, like people would hand me a cookie or brownie or whatever, and I would just take it.
1: Oh, boy. Right? Yeah.
0: I mean, that's kind of what's interesting about things being more regulated now. One of the big benefits is my original, and I think many people's experiences have been just like, it's kind of this thing you're sneaking around and your friends get it somehow. And like you have no idea where it's coming from. You don't know how much you're taking. And I think that's true with a lot of drugs and one of the unfortunate sides of Things not being things being legal or not regulated, any of that, you don't know that what exactly what you're getting.
1: Yes, right. Exactly.
0: Whereas if you're going to a dispensary and it's completely legal for you to do so, you get a much higher level experience because you're getting you know a lot more about what you're taking. Exactly. Right. right. And so in a way, it's a lot safer, and you become more educated about. I mean. Jason and I just went into a dispensary a month or so ago in Colorado. And it was like you walk in there, it's like going to a liquor store or it's like perhaps even like a cafe to order a coffee. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that simple. And you can ask the people that work there a lot of information. So yeah. you feel very aware.
1: Well, I've also noticed, and I know we're getting tangential, but welcome to this might get uncomfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I have gone to dispensaries in Colorado, of course, here in California, uh, Detroit, my hometown, Michigan, mm-hmm. and, and also Vegas.
0: And Massachusetts now they I, have them. I, I mean, it's yeah. it's
1: becoming ubiquitous to the point where in LA this past month, we have our first cannabis cafe, oh, yeah. which I haven't been to yet. Probably report on that in a future episode, but it's, Wait, it's-
0: That's separate from what we're actually going to a cannabis event.
1: Yeah, but this tomorrow? is-,
0: a, is Tomorrow? The yeah, tomorrow? Yeah.
1: This is an actual physical restaurant in West Hollywood.
0: Right. And it's the first actual
1: public cafe- that has cannabis in, infused there. So it's it, it, so
0: cool. I, I think about that.
1: The, the overarching thing to me is like, again, if people make a sweeping generalization, and of course, I feel like this is probably an offshoot of the boy, the war on drugs. And of course, you know, the dare campaign of the 80s with Nancy Reagan. And like, we've just been fed this blanket statement for decades of drugs are bad. Mm-hmm. But actually, these drugs The pharmaceutical drugs and tobacco and alcohol, those drugs are okay. But these drugs over here, the ones that actually have the potential to help and heal you, those are bad. Right. So again, I'm encouraged by seeing not only more clinical research being funded, but more distinctions being made of again, you know, things that have the potential to do deep harm in the body, a la heroin, cocaine, but things that if you use them with the right intention, that's a point I want to make. I find that. When I'm doing psychedelics, it is with the intention of exploring more of myself, finding out more of who I am, gaining clarity, right? Usually Mm -hmm. there's something in my mind's eye that like I'm asking for clarity on. It's done with the intention of experiencing something that ultimately hopefully will lead to clarity and healing, Mm -hmm. which I think I do believe that the energetics of plants and medicine, plant medicine, responds to the energy that you're engaging with it. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. Like when I've done, say- Uh, Psilocybin in the past, mushrooms. I've found that my state of being and who I'm with and my environment has a direct impact on what I'm going to experience. It's almost as if the mushrooms, the plant is reading my energy and reflecting back to me my environment and state. It's enhancing Mm -hmm, it, it's reflecting mm -hmm. it. So I do feel again that the intention and the energy we bring to these sort of experiences has a lot to do with ultimately what we are going to experience on this medicine. I believe that.
0: And I'll pause you there for a second, another little tangent is you don't necessarily have to do drugs to achieve these benefits. They're kind of like a shortcut in some cases or an avenue to get there that, you know, it's it's like we're all trying to get to the same place and we're doing it in different ways. So if you're listening to this and thinking, I'm not that sure about ayahuasca or marijuana or whatever else, mushrooms. Like maybe those things don't appeal to you, and you have a, a very personal reason, you know, as as some people do. They they call themselves straight edge, whatever. They they just don't want to engage in that, or maybe they they have addictive tendencies. Whoa, I felt
1: like oh wow,
0: what what? Did
1: you, no, did you do you feel like there was a spider on you?
0: Yeah, there isn't because there was. <gasps> Stop! Don't. <laughs> Oh, it's just a tiny little one. Okay. I saw a bigger one earlier and I was like, I really hope that big spider is not
1: Shall I take him outside?
0: Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'll I'll continue my little story while you're releasing the spider. That is an that is a an, Is it the word unnerving? Is that correct? It is not it is not a pleasant sensation. And I'm actually not that afraid of spiders, but having feeling a bug crawl on you and you didn't realize it was there is is a very uncomfortable uncomfortable sensation that I'm not a fan of but there's a lot of spiders that live in my home and I don't mind and we're back and uh, anyways so my point being is that actually after recording the first part or the previous episode part 1 of this conversation I've just been reflecting on it a lot and and as I mentioned at the beginning I really am enjoying reading and listening to Michael Pollan's book on this, I also noticed something really fascinating that I'm not exactly sure of at the moment, but sometimes we, we learn something and then it gives us an opportunity to be more present and take in the information in a different way. So when you were talking about at the end of episode one or the part one of the, these two episodes, Jason, and talking about releasing and how you smelled something, this medication that you took as a kid that you haven't taken in since. In decades. Right? And decades. that's a very specific smell to that. Mm-hmm. I actually remember very clearly a medicine that I took. And then part of me is like, I wonder if I would would have the same thing. There's one medication I took as a little kid that was so revolting to me back then. And every once in a while, I taste or smell something like it. And it's like, right? That sensory memory. But anyways. I noticed in my yoga class something similar to what you experienced, except it was a mental release. I've noticed recently, let's say in the past few months, I take hot yoga. So I'm sweating and I'm also moving my body. And, you know, there's so many healing powers to it, right? So, as I said earlier, if you're looking for something other than drugs, I think yoga and meditation or just any type of movement, but yoga is so connected to mind, body, spirit that it's a really wonderful way to get to know yourself, to move yourself, express yourself, but also heal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just occurred to me, I think it was probably in yesterday's yoga class that I took, that thoughts were coming up that I had no idea where they were coming from. And then like this is a common thing for me in yoga right like i'll be i'll be in yoga class my mind will start wandering and i'll find myself like thinking about things that have happened to me people places events and i'll have no idea why they came to mind and sometimes i'm just in my class thinking why am i thinking about that right now mm. I, I can't think of any any stimulus that would have brought that to mind and then it occurred to me yesterday, perhaps those are, have been stored in my tissues, and when I'm moving my body, I'm releasing some old emotions that were just stored in our, in our body, just like maybe that medication was stored in your body through ayahuasca, right? Totally. It had never occurred to me before. I... I, I Know the phrase, the issues in your tissues. A lot of people think about like releasing things in your hips, right? So I'll mm-hmm. think of that every once in a while in certain poses. And I, now it seems kind of strange that it hadn't occurred to me, but but it's almost as if when I'm in yoga, I'm processing all sorts of past experiences. And yesterday I became very, very aware of that.
1: It's interesting. I, it yeah. reminds me of what I've learned and experienced in somatic therapy and somatic experiencing because the therapist that I have worked with for the last five years in LA, he does somatic therapy where the principle so far as I understand is that we will address traumatic experiences of the past. And rather than just doing talk therapy or hashing it out verbally, we will get into where in the body do I remember restriction and constraint and trauma being stored. And I've noticed interestingly that whenever we've gone into this somatic experiencing and and bring up these traumatic events from the past, it seems that there are two primary areas that where my body has stored a lot of it. And one is my stomach, Mm -hmm. which probably partially explains a lot of the gut issues I've had over Mm -hmm. the course of my life. Me too. Where the trauma and the stress and the anxiety and the fear that I've experienced from these Big moments has been stored like in my gut.: Yeah. But of course we know, interestingly, though, that our gut, our enteric nervous system, our ENS, also affects our brain and our central nervous system. Mm-hmm. So the relation between our gut health and our brain health and our emotions. So interestingly, as I do this somatic experiencing and really get in touch with all the trauma I've held in my gut, it makes me think, "Wow, all of these mental health challenges and depression and the things that I've been experiencing the past few years man, it's like as I heal my gut and as I physically release the energetic trauma in my body, it certainly has had a ripple effect in like I – it's almost like that domino effect. It's it's not like the stomach or the gut is this isolated environment that I'm just going to heal that. Of course, it has this domino effect that as we heal one thing, it has this ripple or domino effect where it's going to heal other things. Mm-hmm. I truly believe mm-hmm. that because we're a symbiotic organism. I had a point to all this. I can't remember. <laughs> I just I just think it's interesting that as we learn more about ourselves and the human body, it's going to take new modalities and new ways of thinking about healing. Right. And so to your point, even if you have a reaction to this and going like, oh, they're talking about drug use, certainly things like somatic experiencing, yoga, holotropic breathing, uh, we'll put that in the show notes at wellevator.com. There's a, a pioneer of that called Stanislav Grove, where it's it's this intense focused breathing technique that is intended to bring up and heal trauma so breathing techniques Mm -hmm. yoga meditation there there are many ways for you to i believe and all of us to heal ourselves and release trauma and get clear about who we are it's you know we're not here to condemn anybody's methodologies we're just here to share perhaps new avenues and new ways of thinking
0: about it and it's a great story so let's get back into the story so which story your story. Oh well. Like first, let's finish. <laughs> let's finish the the edible story, yeah. and then we'll get into back to the main topic of ayahuasca. So th-
1: again, three years ago, I misread the milligram dosage on the package of these raw vegan organic macaroons, and I had. W- we way, can put
0: that the brand in the show notes too, if anybody's interested. They still exist.
1: I would have to think really hard about oh what that brand again. Okay. It was it was four years ago actually. So hmm. okay. I take way too many. And the whole reason I took these was because I had a mountain of dishes and it was one of these things where like, I don't want to do the dishes, man. I can't, ugh, such a harangue. And I thought, well, if I just like give myself a little bit of boost and like get in a good feeling, like I'll, I'll be able to tackle these dishes. No problem. So I'm washing the dishes, I'm doing it. And you know, I'm 40 minutes into doing the dishes because there's a lot of dishes and then it hits me. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling good now. But then it was like that thing of going up the roller coaster where mm-hmm. you're like, ka-chum, ka-chum, ka 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 Oh, this is feeling good. This is cool. But then when you're on the ride, it's like, oh, my God. So once I was on, I realized that like, oh, wow, I did way too much. And then, you know, there was a point where you wanted to come over, but I forgot you said you were, are you surprised? You know, I don't think you told me I you think were coming I, over. No,
0: I think I called you. And yeah, you said I'm really high yeah. right now and I was concerned about you. you were, so that's why I came over. But
1: then like through the shadowy glass of my front door, I part. saw a giant hat and I didn't know it was Whitney and like doo, 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 knock at the door. Well, I
0: think I kind of then, I kind of thought that'd be funny because I was wearing this black rimmed hat. Yeah. Like a stylish, you know, boho chic hat that I got from Vote Couture. And uh, it's it's a great hat, but the reflection of it looked like a sheriff's hat or something like that. And I think I I think I knew that and thought it'd be kind of fun to mess around with you.
1: Yeah, it wasn't fun because
0: I think I she, knocked and then I didn't say anything. Yeah, like, Jason came in the door and he was like, oh, "Hello." <laughs> I was like, oh, "Hello,"
1: and then once I realized it was her, I was so relieved. <laughs> but I wasn't done yet, and I kept getting more and more high. To one point where I had to crawl to the bathroom to use the bathroom. And as I was crawling out of the downstairs bathroom at my old loft, the cats, Claudia and Lynx, my two original cats, were looking at me like, Dad, why are you crawling on the ground? Like I could tell their energy was responding to me like, what are you doing? And that made it feel even worse because I'm like, great, the cats are freaked out now everybody's freaked out.
0: And you were you were like upset about the helicopters. You thought like there was helicopters swarming around. Oh, I got so paranoid.
1: Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was just too much. So I I guess the lesson here is make sure you're doing your math right. Yeah. And don't- You're in
0: a controlled environment. Don't you take more than safe. what
1: you need. But here's the thing. And, and as we bleed into the ayahuasca conversation into more details of the messages that came up for me, one of the big things I've realized is that when you do psychedelics or entheogens, things that are opening your consciousness, okay, if you have any control issues, it will bring them right to the forefront. That would be me. Right to the forefront. <laughs> because there's really only two choices when you're doing a psychedelic plant medicine. You either resist or surrender. And
0: mm-hmm. if
1: there's a part of you that's like, I want it to stop, I want it to stop, I want it to stop, you can't. You, just, you, you either resist or you surrender. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think the power of it is if we're trying to micromanage our lives and control things and try and say, this is an uncomfortable moment and I want it to end, mm-hmm. whatever plant medicine is like, mm you're in for the long haul. Sorry.
0: Well, that happened right? with it, you, right? I don't know if this is before or after you started talking about the diarrhea in part one, but I do recall you were sitting there and the shaman who looked like Jesus came over and he just was breathing with you. Mm-hmm. Right? Was that before or after the diarrhea? That part? was before the diarrhea. Part. Okay. So let's go back to the diarrhoea. You're you're sitting there, you you said that you went to the bathroom like six to eight times.
1: Over the course of the night, yeah.
0: And it wasn't that unpleasant. It was just I felt like a release. You could smell your old every time you could smell the medication.
1: Wow. Every single time.
0: Did you now I know when we left off you really wanted to talk about the child healing. Yeah. So for you and I think that's actually really true, knowing you, Jason, very well. You do bring up your childhood a lot. And the trauma that you felt when your parents ended their relationship, your dad left, that, that seemed to be a really crucial moment. And when was the, med- was the medication when your dad was around?
1: It was, and also after. Yeah, okay. because I had, I had really severe childhood asthma. Mm-hmm. To the point where I would actually stop breathing, and uh, a few times had to be rushed to the hospital because I wasn't breathing. Do you there think was that was moments. any
0: any like um, trauma related?
1: I've thought about that because issue. because yeah. in my in my teen years in high school, the asthma went away mm. completely, went away. So I'm sure that there, which
0: which is possible that you kind of grew out of it or it was true,
1: but it's fascinating to think about how does emotional trauma or emotional distress affect disease in the body? I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a massive subject that to unpack. Is it possible that for some reason, my body chose to have a reaction to the trauma of, of, you know, the relationship with my dad? Sure. It's possible. I, I don't know that I've seen or been shown a direct link to that, but it's a possibility. I'm sure.
0: So you're smelling, you're in the bathroom and you're smelling this.
1: The corticosteroids I took from mm-hmm. my asthma as a kid. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. very specific smell. Mm. And I'm releasing throughout the night over and over. And, and interestingly, when I'm on, and I'm still on my psychedelic journey by this way, I'm still seeing.
0: Oh, yeah. Cause you just went to that. I want you, before we end the episode, you need to talk about what you went to. It was last night that you went to that?
1: The integration. Yeah.
0: Integration.
1: So. Two nights ago. Two nights ago. So. You know, mind you, this physical release of the diarrhea and letting go of what I perceive as these childhood drugs this I mean it's such a specific smell was coinciding with you know still having these psychedelic visions i mean i'm not I'm not fully in the earth reality what what is you the
0: bathroom like when you're having these psychedelic visions? like does the bathroom feel like it's like some different location? like how did you even know where the toilet like Are you conscious enough that you're like, okay, this is the bathroom, this is the handle, this is the toilet seat. Yes. I remember how to go to the bathroom. Like you're you're in
1: you have motor functions and skills (laughs) and and awareness of spatial relationships. Yes. It's Mm -hmm. it's not to the point where you're so incapacitated that for me I couldn't even get to the bathroom. You know, that it was it was challenging to get up off of my nest, you know, in in my psychedelic state and having these visions and messages come through where it was like, oh, I just want to be here receiving the messages and being in it. But then my physical body is like, y- you need to go to the bathroom right now. So then it was mustering the energy to physically get up while I'm doing all of this emotional, spiritual processing and being like, on a raw, primal level, your body needs to release. So yes, let's honor the psychedelic experience you're having. But like, you also don't want to shit your pants Mm -hmm. so get to the bathroom so it's almost like you know coaching myself in a way of like okay dude get up put your hands on the feet on the floor rise and walk very slowly to the bathroom like i had to kind of coach myself the whole Mm -hmm. way but i was physically able to do it
0: what if there had been Uh, someone else in the bathroom what would you have done
1: go to a different bathroom
0: oh there's plenty of bathrooms yeah thank goodness yeah
1: yeah (laughs) because people are like i said people are Emotionally purging, you know, screaming, laughing, crying.
0: What was that like psychologically? Fascinating. Because So you and I have been to those sound bath healings, speaking of another way to heal. Mm-hmm. And it's tough when you're in a room and, there, and a lot of people are emotionally releasing at the same time. It's, yeah. It can be a little disturbing psychologically. It can be jarring. It can be distracting. Did you find any of that with this experience?
1: I didn't and I, I interestingly because at sound baths and sound healing I have felt like annoyed <laughs> because yeah. I'm in my own state and then people are screaming like screaming laughing processing Moaning. really like raw visceral releases. But for some reason I felt I guess the best way to describe it is I felt as if I was in a cocoon. Mm. And that people's, hearing people vomit, hearing people scream, hearing people moan, hearing people cry didn't, uh, it wasn't disturbing for me.
0: Hmm. But you could, you were aware of it. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. I wonder how I'd feel about that.
1: I think, though, the, the interesting thematic thread through was just how much of the wounded, traumatized child within me needed to receive this experience. And I think there were so many signs and I didn't go in expecting that. I had no, I had no expectation of what I was going to be shown or the visions or the messages. It was just kind of blank slate. I don't know what's going to happen here, but aside from what I detailed and I don't necessarily want to rehash the the psychedelic visions or the other, what I perceive the other dimensional realities I went to that we shared in part one, the interwoven into that experience and the physical release were very clear messages. And it's, and when I say messages, it's not as if there was, I don't know, the voice of God or another being saying these things in my ear. It was more like an intuitive set of aha moments that were being revealed internally to me. That's the best way I can describe them. And You know, the childhood thing was interesting, not only because of the corticosteroids and the smell when I was having my physical release, but a good friend of ours who invited me to the ceremony, you know, she gifted me with this stuffed unicorn cat that again, I realized was the physical embodiment of Huckle the cat, which was my imaginary friend that I had as a kid, which that's a whole nother, I believe as children, small children, we do have the perception of other realities and dimensional beings. And I believe that this imaginary, oh, how cute, Jason has his imaginary friend. I believe that I had some relationship to some non-physical being, mm-hmm, I do. Mm-hmm. So these childhood messages were so fascinating. But if we go way, way, way deep and we go back into the trauma of my father leaving and I was so young that I didn't understand the the dynamics of what was happening with my mom and dad, right? Mm-hmm. I, as, as a young child, you don't know about the abuse, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the, the, the details and dynamics of your mom and dad's relationship. You don't have that information mm-hmm. as a young, young child. So what I did was I internalized in my young, young brain that everything was good before I came here. Mom and dad were together. They were traveling the world. They were happy. And then wait, what's different? Oh, I'm here. That's why he left. Because I'm here, because I'm the only difference. Like before I came, they were fine and they were great. And my little childhood brain had created this association that I'm the reason because I'm not good enough or I'm a problem that dad left and mom and dad aren't together anymore. I took that responsibility. And beyond that, the deep fear of abandonment, of being abandoned by my dad, was exacerbated of this thing of like, well, I need to prove I'm good enough because. If I'm not good enough, then mom's going to leave me too. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to be completely abandoned. So this abandonment, not enoughness, fear mechanism was created subconsciously for me at a young age because I took responsibility for something I didn't need to take responsibility for, right? But through that, especially in this ayahuasca ceremony, I noticed that I have been trying to prove myself worthy of being loved. My entire life. That if I am making everyone in the room laugh, if I'm entertaining everyone, if I'm giving them a lot of value, if I'm holding healing space, if I'm showing up and being like this shining, bright, shimmering character, if people are laughing and they're having fun with me or they deeply value me, then I'll never be abandoned again. So the deep, deep thing that came up for me was. Everything you've been doing there's been some element of you trying to prove yourself worthy of love. Mm. And then how toxic and painful that's been with whatever aspect of my music career, acting career, food career, speaking career, it's like there's been sub subconscious motivation of I need to wow you, impress you, show you my value so then I will be worthy of the love you give me. It's been this transactional thing of me trying to prove myself because I've been so afraid of being abandoned again or not having love in my life, which goes all the way back to the original abandonment scar of my father. So the message that came through to me was, no matter what you've chosen in your life, even if you think you've made a wrong choice or you fucked up or you did bad, love has always been there. You've never needed to prove it. You've never needed to earn it from anyone. You've never needed to show your worthiness. Like I was reviewing all these moments of my life, like really painful, hard moments that I didn't know how I would make it through. And she, the medicine was so clear that like, you have been held in love through all of this. Even in the moments you couldn't see it, that was love. And it was like, my question was, why is that love? She said, because, because it was allowed. And it became clear to me in that moment that de- like real love, unconditional love, is synonymous with allowing. Mm. That if love is the thread of reality, which I believe that it is, some people call it God, universe, spirit, I'm calling it love right now. That much like the sun shines on everyone. It shines on people with disabilities. It shines on murderers. It shines on rapists. It shines on the Dalai Lama. It shines on saints. Like the sun, the air, the water. Life is not asking us to prove our worthiness. Or life is not deciding what is right and wrong. Life is loving us no matter what. That was the big message. was like You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove yourself worthy of. You don't need to stop trying to get things from people. You have been loved and will be loved no matter what you choose. Mm. Like That was so crystal clear. And it's been hard for me this past 10, 11 days because I've been reviewing how much of what I've chosen to do over pretty much all my adult life has been got to get straight A's, got to be valedictorian, got to have a New York Times bestseller gotta be the first vegan chef in history on Food Network. Gotta have this. Gotta get the Tesla. Gotta do this. Gotta have the big house. But blah, 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 blah. it's all mm-hmm. been some element of now I'm worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. I'm worthy of love now. Mom, I'm worthy of your love. Dad, I'm worthy of your love. Romantic mm-hmm. partner, I'm worthy. Society, everyone, I'm worthy of your love now. Yep. And it's been fucking exhausting, Whitney. Exhausting. And like realizing that that's been running as a script subconsciously for probably my entire life since that childhood it's like wow what a revelation
0: see to me this doesn't seem like anything i mean i'm not trying to diminish it at all but i'm I'm trying to get clear on i don't think you've said anything that you didn't already know so what was the difference
1: here's the difference
0: First of all, I mean, we all have the answers within us all the time. It's just a matter of we're conscious enough of them, Here's right?
1: here's, here's what I feel, and I'll, I have more to share, of course, but the big difference between this experience and, say, talk therapy or other healing modalities that I've worked on for my mental and emotional health, right, is that there's a big chasm between intellectually grokking a concept. Mm. Oh, I see. Oh, right. So subconsciously, I've been believing that I'm not enough and that I need to prove myself worthy of love. So I'll stop trying to prove that, right? That's just an intellectual concept that you're like, oh, okay.
0: Which you already knew. Which I right? did know that. Yeah. But
1: this was like a cellular integration of feeling in that ceremony. That as I was shitting my brains out and crying and drooling all over, just, just release like this ugly, beautiful, gross release of so many emotions and so many fluids and so many ideas, it was like, it was, I finally felt it in my body, not just as an intellectual concept. And I feel like you, and I, you Whitney, and I talked about this. You and I briefly talked about, it, I think maybe at the beginning of this week or last week, that. In healing and wellness, there's a lot of this. It's like, here are my five steps to unlock more energy. And here's my 10 ways to have you feel better with your partner. But we can read as many books or blog posts or podcasts as we want to. But to me, the great majority of it is just these intellectual concepts that just kind of pass through our filter. But when we actually start to have a deep cellular experience of something, that to me is the difference of like the lessons and the wisdom is finally integrating into our being. And there's a massive chasm between like, oh yeah, I know about that. And so I'm gonna teach about that and position myself as an expert on that, even though I haven't lived the thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing, and I'm not saying this to condemn influencers or coaches or experts or whatever, but I'm just, my frame around it now is I hear what you are saying And you're just dispensing knowledge, not having experienced or lived it. And I'm looking at things radically differently now Mm. in terms of who's dispensing advice, wisdom, courses, teachings, where it's like, and I only say that because I had an intellectual grokking of my not enoughness or my abandonment issues. But in this experience, I was being held in an energy and a wisdom That was so big and the magnitude of it was so huge that it was just, I was just crying because it was like, I had an experience in my body of no matter what I choose, I am being held in love, like no matter what. It's like, really? I was challenging it and it's like, really? No, what if I, no, no matter what you Mm. choose, Mm -hmm. you are loved. She was like, do you understand? No matter what. Right. Right. So it was an experiential integration of this that was different than just, oh, I get that. Okay, I read it in a book. It's way different. It's it's, it's, it's just substantively so different. Hmm. And I'm trying to explain it as best I can.
0: So you finish up this experience and how do you come out of it? Once you kind of ha- gain that awareness, that knowledge- Tapping into yourself,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how is it? Kind of like that was the end cap, and then you slowly start coming out of this space.
1: It's it's a gradual, it's a gradual sort of mm, experience in the sense that you don't get snapped out of it right away. You know, like at, so.
0: Once you get this information, then then what happens? Well, if you're not snapped right out of well, it. Well, there's
1: more. There's more layers to it. It's it's almost like. There's layers to the psychedelic portion of it where you feel like I talked about in part one, where there's just deeper layers of going into this other reality. And with the lessons and the integration of this healing, it feels the same way. It's not just like, oh, hey, you have these abandonment issues and not enoughness. And that's been coloring your entire adult life. But here's how it's shown up. Here's these moments where you thought you weren't enough. Here's these things you were trying to do. Like, it's almost like a review of like, Mm -hmm. and you were loved there and you Mm -hmm." were loved there. And you didn't need to prove that there. And you were always worthy. And you've always been worthy. And now we're like showing you so you can feel this. And so it, it's almost like there were just layers of revelation that I was experiencing in every part of this. And and when I say it was the longest night of my life, it literally felt like this evening was days long, mm. days long. And the sun comes up, starts to come up. And... I didn't sleep the entire evening, by the way. I'm fully... Do most people? Some people slept. Some people were fully awake. I was... was,
0: You didn't want to. You couldn't.
1: I just didn't. I don't know that I couldn't. Mm. I just didn't. And in the morning, it was just this, whoa. (laughs) It felt like the longest night of my life. So when the sun started to come out, it, it was this like... Here comes the sun, doo doo doo. doo. it was like, "Oh, there's the sun," and I felt exhausted physically. I felt exhausted emotionally. And the other part of this ceremony was the the day after ayahuasca. During the day, you take San Pedro, which is a cactus, mm-hmm. and the idea is that the ayahuasca is a feminine spirit energy, plant medicine, and the San Pedro is a masculine energy. So it's more of like a focusing, grounding, clarifying sort of experience where ayahuasca is like all the stuff that you're in pain about. Here it is. You're loved. Can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? Like it's, it's, it's like mother, father energy. It's very different. Whereas like, I felt like my experience with San Pedro, which was, it was a ground up cactus and You mix it with water and it's viscous and sludgy, almost like when you make like a chia pudding or a Mm. psyllium husk, Mm -hmm. you have to drink it right away Mm -hmm. or it'll just gelatinize. Mm -hmm. So the San Pedro the following day is intended to bring the masculine spirit in, which is again, very grounding, very like, we've got you. Like, we're going to just hold you in like a very firm, like warm embrace of like everything you just went through, like the craziness you just experienced. Like, it's okay. And I walk outside after I take the San Pedro and our group, and I'm overlooking the hills and the trees and the plants and the the mountains here. And I could feel like the trees and the plants were talking to me, and that the vividness of their color and their movements, I had never been fully present to how vivid and beautiful just the swaying and the movements of the trees were. It's like Oh, they're dancing, they're alive, you know. And, and how often I walk outside and I'm not even present to the aliveness of plant life. Mm-hmm. I mean, even looking out at like the lemon tree here at the podcast studio, it's like, oh, it's moving, like it's alive. There's life force in these things. And just, well, there's just a tree, there's a plant. Like San Pedro was very much like, look at the aliveness of life. Everywhere you look there's life. Everywhere you look there's allowing. And I don't know it was it, it was just a very much like can you see love in action in the world wherever you look. Wait a
0: second. So at this point you're have you kind of come out of the feelings of the ayahuasca and now is San Pedro like is there overlap? Yeah. Does it go from one into the other?
1: Yeah, because San Pedro is a much slower, longer process than the ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. So the San Pedro was a very slow build into the vividness of the colors and the sounds and the feelings of the plants and nature that I experienced. Whereas I mentioned ayahuasca was like probably about 40, 45 minutes into it, it was like, boom, you're in a different dimension. Mm. Whereas this was not, San Pedro was not a psychedelic experience. It was more like a sensory body perceptive opening. I wasn't seeing visions. I wasn't, it was more like tuning me into the subtleties of nature that were already present, but that in day-to-day life, we don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. It was like, look at the life and the aliveness and the vibrance and the love that is around you all the time that you're not even present to in your day-to-day life. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the San Pedro was like very much like a heart centered thing. I did a lot of crying, like even more crying on San Pedro than I did on ayahuasca because I felt like I was just sitting with like, again, this overarching message of like everywhere you look in the plants, in the insects, in the spider on Whitney's arm, in our Mm -hmm. companion animals, in the suffering you've been through, the pain you've been through. Love has always been there and it will always be there. You know, and I was laughing at myself because I'm like, man, this is some this is some crazy woo woo shit. But it wasn't because it was my and it is my experience of life. And so when I hear Marianne Williamson talking about love so much in her political campaign, her her campaign for the presidency, and people are like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, yoga and colonics and love, Marianne, that's what's going to solve. She's on point. But nobody wants to hear it because, not nobody, a lot of people don't want to hear it because I feel like <laughs> love has been construed into something that we have minimized and re- have sort of like a reductive experience of love where it's like, oh, love is just, you know, it's, it's romantic, it's Eros, or like, I love my dog, I love my car. But what she's talking about is something that I finally had a direct cellular spiritual experience of which will, everything is love truly. And what she is saying, as an example, because right now she's just it's so present with the, the presidential race. She gets some talks about love, like truly seeing each other as one, and the generosity and compassion and care we extend to others is the same generosity, care, and compassion we extend to ourselves, and how that will heal the fabric of humanity. She is on point. Point, and maybe people are just jaded. Like, oh yeah, love that'll solve everything. Marianne, no, we need we need we need prescription coverage, and we need that. And she's saying like, yes, I honor the fact that we need these things, but the intention behind it needs to be based in love, not fear. And it's just interesting, like at her as an example to see how people are responding. But I'm like, yeah, this is very real that. If we come from a space of love in our business decisions, in our political actions, in the companies we choose to support with our money, in how we conduct ourselves in relationships, and I see, I see love, again, as being synonymous with allowing, being synonymous with compassion, being synonymous with empathy, and these values, if we learn how to really tap into them and integrate them, they will change the world. I mean, I'm, I'm more clear on that than ever before. And that even though we have war, and even though we have violence, and even though we have global warming, and animal genocide, and all the things that we have going on, on this planet. And I've thought about this for a year. Like, why? If, if, if God's spirit universes exist, why would, why, would, why would he, it, they allow that to happen? But if we're talking about the... Fabric of this reality being love. It's being allowed to happen so that we can learn from it and realize that no matter what we choose, I mean, it's it's going to be hard for some people to grasp. It even is strange for me to even say it, because I wrestled with that question for years. How could God? How could you? The spirit of everything? How could it allow such atrocities to exist? But it showed me so clearly, like all of these things you're labeling as atrocities. You know, Trump's bad. Animal agriculture is bad. Global warming is bad. Bad, bad, bad. All these things are horrible. They're being allowed to exist because unconditional love is allowing. And if these things mm-hmm. weren't allowed to exist, it wouldn't be unconditional.
0: hmm hmm Yeah.
1: And even me saying it, it's like, wow, you're really saying I believe that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I
1: believe it. And I believe that these painful, scary situations that we're facing as a global society as a global community they are there to teach us they are there to give us a choice they are there to say do you want to keep choosing this like love will be there you know as the world is burning the world love is there and it's almost as if there's an omnipresent force that is saying we're not going to stop any of this because that would be conditional mm-hmm. we're going to allow all of it to exist mm-hmm. simultaneously because maybe love god spirit, universe." is also growing and expanding and learning through us, through our experiences. Maybe we're all here because we're all part of some cosmic play where as the universe, as love, as spirit, as we're all connected to each other, as we learn and grow and dissolve into more love, that's contributing to the collective. And this was the first time, Whitney, that I like had a direct experience of this, of like oneness. That it's not some bullshit, woo-woo, hippie concept that it's like, oh, this is real. This is mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. And we are in this together, no
0: doubt. You know, what's interesting is in How to Change Your Mind, Michael Pollan says that it is, I think he phrased it this way, I could be wrong, but he said something along the lines of human beings have a natural desire to shift their consciousness- and yet it's really interesting, going back to what you were saying in the beginning, how it's almost like we are reprimanded for trying to shift our consciousness. like there's so many stigmas against drinking and drugs, sex you know pleasure, um meditation, yoga, all these different things there's there's so many different opinions on it, whether you see it right or wrong or woo-woo or you know acceptable, whatever frame you have around it. It's almost like human beings have this strong desire to shift their consciousness and better understand themselves and get deeper. But a lot of people are raised in environments where they're shamed for it or where they see it as something that's wrong. And Mm -hmm. you talking about this, it's very compelling because if more people had an opportunity to experience a shift in consciousness, whether it's through drugs or not, you wonder how much that would change the way that we relate to each other, how much the, the way that we show up, the way that we feel about ourselves. And I've often thought that not allowing people to shift their consciousness or discouraging people from shifting their consciousness is a control mechanism. Because if they can get, if they, whoever you want, that you perceive they being, whether it's the government or whatever, if you keep somebody thinking the way that you want them to think, then you have control over them. Whereas if as human beings, we can, we can shift into different ways of thinking, which is harder to control, but yet has greater effects on harmony and peace in this world. I agree with know? that.
1: I think too, there is something to be said about, and th- this shows up in a lot of different spiritual texts and, and religious and spiritual teachings but this idea of dying before we die I've seen it in the Toltecs the Mayans the Aztecs this idea of
0: like the death of the ego or something yeah
1: and it's it's not an actual when I say die before you die it's not it's not death and physical resurrection it's it's one of the other big lessons of the experience I had was you've been so this is me, me, when I say you, she's, the medicine is communicating to me. You've been so concerned again, with this idea of earning love, being worthy of love of what you call yourself or the title you've assigned to yourself. I'm a celebrity chef. I'm a TV host. I'm a best-selling author. I'm a this, I'm a that. And her whole thing was like, doesn't matter.
0: Well, we talked about that in matter. another episode. Which right. We can put in the show notes. We yeah. talked all about how we label ourselves. But this
1: was like a direct experience yeah. of like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, it, she was basically like, "You don't want to be a chef, and you don't be a chef. You don't want to sing anymore. Don't be like you don't have to do anything to prove yourself mm-hmm. worthy of love mm-hmm. over and over." It was like, "Do you get this?"
0: Well, it's interesting too when you bring that up it all comes down to a worthiness and a love thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that because they're seeing it through the lens of needing to make money, right? I mean, that's such a huge core because money is very tied into survival. So you, I know you as Jason Robel want to stop calling yourself a chef, but there are times where you call yourself a chef to make money, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what is your perspective on that now after this? I mean, do you see I mean money is about love, right? well, it's kind of like it's, it's it still feels like in the world that we live in mm-hmm. that money is we can't just be like, oh, money's just love, don't worry about it because no. we live in a society where we basically need money, yeah. to get by well right? I'll,
1: I'll tell you this the the way when she aya said it doesn't matter, she wasn't communicating it in a destructive, nihilistic way. it was like. You want to call yourself chef, great. You don't want to, great. Mm. You're not identified with that thing. You can call yourself whatever you want, but you, your essence, your eternal, like you, the isness that you are, the spirit, the soul that you are, it doesn't matter. Call yourself whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You've been a copywriter. You've been a warehouse worker. You've been a box truck driver. You've been the grill guy at Wendy's. You've been like, no matter what, like the eternal you does not change. So it doesn't matter. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing, though, to your point, is I have been looking at my intuition and my integrity more so than anything. And you and I talked about a business situation a few days ago that a lot of colleagues and acquaintances are doing, and some of them are making a ton of money. MLM. It's an MLM. Which is? Uh, Multi-level marketing, previously known as a pyramid scheme. Is it really? Well, MLMs in,
0: and period, pyramid schemes are slightly different. They are,
1: but I believe that the pyramid schemes gave way to we need to structure this differently, and they became MLMs. Got it. As far as this history, meaning of meaning there's
0: someone at the top, and that person enrolls somebody. Yeah, and he's they're like the head vampire, money. right?
1: And I and in this particular case, I do know who that is. And like mm. they're making money off of everyone, and they make millions and millions and millions of dollars every year. Like more power to them. My point in this though is. Rather than getting hung up on like, oh, Jason Robel, he's the celebrity vegan chef or cooking channel host or author, whatever people want to call me, whatever the bio says, right? It's disidentifying with that defining me, which gives me the freedom to choose what I want because I know it doesn't define me. Like that mm-hmm. was really the message that I got. Mm-hmm. But the, the deeper thing with is that I want to do things that are in integrity and that feel good in my heart and my gut. And with this opportunity, this MLM thing, it was like, yeah, do this, man. This is right up your alley. It's got all these products and and superfoods and da da da, and all this money you're going to make. And look at what this person did. Look what they did. Money, 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 money. But when I dove into how people were structuring the marketing and the outreach and how to recruit customers and how to do it, there was a lot of it that didn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. I checked in with my heart. I checked in with my gut. And the response of some people was like, Oh, well, that's your edge, and you're not willing to push past. And where else in your life do you not, do you freeze up and not take action? I was like, No, that's not what's happening here. I'm I'm paying attention to what my gut and my heart is telling me, and my gut and my heart are saying this doesn't feel right. And I battled with myself with it for a while because it was like, oh yeah, but all these people are making all this money. But I believe, because I've done this before and I've taken clients and I've taken brand deals and done business deals that I knew didn't feel right, but Mm -hmm. I did it for the money. Yeah. And there are energetic consequences that are paid when you choose something that your body and your being are saying, do not do this and you choose it anyway. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not held in the space of love. And when I say consequences, I don't mean that there's a punitive God or that the energy of the universe is going to punish you. But I believe that we are the universe, we are God, we are love, we are all that is in this form, and there are energetic repercussions to be paid when we willfully choose to ignore our intuition, Mm -hmm. and we willfully choose to ignore the voice inside that is saying, really, do not do this. This isn't for you. Yeah, yeah, but I need money and scarcity and fear and lack, and I'm saying it because I've done it so much. But I'm so aware now that by listening to my heart and listening to my intuition and that higher voice- I'll always be led exactly where, and even if I don't choose it, we're still being led to where we need to be. I just don't have a desire to pay the energetic consequences of choosing something that my heart is telling me not to do. Right. I don't want to pay those prices anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't. Doesn't mean I, I might not do it again. I'm, I'm human and I'm liable to screw up, but I feel the clarity I received through this ceremony was like, you always know the answer. Even if it's buried behind lots of fear and lots of lack consciousness and you feeling like you have to scrape and claw and fight for everything in your life and prove your worthiness, you don't need to do that anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I mean- You don't. I'm sure a lot of people listening are resonating with that because I think especially with social media, which is probably how a lot of people found this podcast. Yeah. Right? A lot of people are listening that have known- one or both of us, Whitney and Jason, and see us through the lens of YouTube and the lens of Instagram and all these other platforms, Facebook, et cetera. And it's it's so interesting because if that's the case, then these people are spending a lot of time on social media. And social media is kind of this fascinating world where we compare our lives to one another and there's there's so many feelings of not good enough and comparison and If only I had this or that. And even though we can know on a surface level that that stuff doesn't matter, it ties into this deeper feeling, as you've described, it's triggering old emotions and thought patterns. And it's really challenging to navigate a lot of those emotions. You know, one of the reasons we feel like titles matter so much or material objects or experiences or numbers and all these other things we start to think that those matter because in a the way they do matter just on a superficial level, mm-hmm. right? Because somebody looks at your numbers, if you hear enough people say, well, this is Jason Robel, he has 40,000 Instagram followers. Like in, somebody says it over and over and over again, when you drop below 40,000 Instagram followers, you wonder, am I not gonna get the same introduction anymore? Are people not gonna care anymore, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The other day, actually, and I have two thoughts I wanna interject, I went to, uh, two nights ago, an uh, integration ceremony with the, the shaman and the facilitators and the psychotherapist and the people that were present. Not everyone was there, but quite a few from the ayahuasca ceremony to integrate from the 10 days since the ceremony, what have we been experiencing, what have we been feeling, all of these things. And one of the attendees there, because I had found her on Instagram and wanted to connect, she said, she, when I saw her, she's like, yeah, thanks for the follow on Instagram. I didn't know you were a celebrity. And she earnestly, she wasn't, she wasn't saying it to mess with me. She actually said like, wow, she's like, you have a lot of followers. And, and I didn't recoil, but I also didn't feel good about the statement. I just, I Mm -hmm. kind of looked at her and I said, what does that even mean? (laughs) And she like laughed and she's like, what? And I said, what is, what does celebrity even mean? I said, that's such a strange thing to say. She's like, well, yeah, but you have 40,000 followers. I said, yeah, but I don't like, would that, that makes me famous? Like. And I wasn't doing it to take her to task. I actually wanted right. to engage in an interesting conversation with her about perception. Yes. Because I don't perceive myself that way. Right. Like, celebrated by whom? Mm, I'm sure, you know, I said to her, like, there are people in our lives that celebrate us no matter what. Like, there are people that probably look to you as a celebrity in your field or mm-hmm, or
0: mm-hmm.
1: what is the... Ce- I mean, it was just a fascinating thing for her to say. Yep. And I didn't feel good about it. I didn't feel bad about it. I just observed it and went, Huh celebrity what the hell does that even mean and why do we feel the need to be like oh you're famous like i've had people say that like meet people at parties and they'll look at the soda and like wow oh mr big shot mr like they'll they'll joke yeah. and i'm like
0: and then okay on the other it's not hand i'm doing it you can be around people with hundred thousands millions, millions of followers and then you feel that way about them yeah and right? and, and it's uh, it, it's it, so it's so weird it,
1: it's it's like this okay um To generalize, in the Western world, in the US, but especially in Los Angeles, where we are recording this episode, there is a dramatic importance placed on external things. How we look, the car we drive, where we live, the zip code we're in, who we're dating, what gluten-free bread are you buying from the market? Like, There's a million different things that people use to be like, hey, pay attention to me. I'm worth something. I'm, important. I'm valuable. I'm yes. important. And that magnet, that microscope is even greater here in Los Angeles for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. But I think it's the perfect place to be to sort out all of these externalized values that we think define us and think we make us who we are, only to realize that none of those things are actually anything about who we are. And I think all of the reasons I came to Los Angeles in the first place 13 years ago, which was, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to use my fame and my talent to spread messages of importance and healing. I'm going to do better than my dad did and prove that I'm better than him so I can prove my worthiness to the world and my family and my mom by coming to LA. But I'm realizing that the 13 years I've been in Los Angeles have actually been about me healing myself And getting to realize that TV series, book, tour, fame, whatever, all that stuff everyone's chasing has nothing to do with actually who I am, Mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. And I think one of the things I feel so adamant about in all of the celebrities that have taken their lives over the past decade that continues to happen is that we've all been sold the idea that, and we've talked about this in different forms, I get the perfect house and the perfect zip code. And I'll say for myself, I get the orange McLaren. I date the whatever. I date this person that I want to date. I get the right clothes. I get the right watch. I I get all these things on my list that I've ticked off. And now I will have proven how good of a person I am. Now I'm worthy of love. Now I'm worthy of celebrity. Now I've proven to my parents and my family it was all worth it. The struggle was all worth it. Look at guys, I made it. Right. Only to realize that on the other side of it.
0: No one cares.
1: No one gives a shit. <laughs> and that gnawing feeling inside of yourself.
0: Doesn't go away. The
1: McLaren, you know, people like, I'd rather cry in a McLaren than a Yugo. Yeah, okay, but you're still crying because the pain and the suffering yeah. and the deep anguish you've experienced in your entire life still hasn't been dealt with.
0: Do people, so, where did you hear that phrase? I've heard
1: it so many times. Really? What's yeah, a, first
0: of all, what's a Yugo? A
1: Yugo is a car from the 80s that you can't really, you can't buy anymore. But, oh. but people usually say, I'd rather cry in a BMW than a bicycle. But I'm in this case. I'm like oh. I'd rather cry, cry in a McLaren than a than a Hugo. It's an extreme huh. example, but We're we're still in this mode of external, 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 proving everything. And and it's weird. Like I've been to parties since the experience, and I've just been out with people. And I'm not only observing how I'm engaging with other humans, but I'm just without judgment observing how people conduct themselves in social situations. And it's so clear to me how much people's behavior is motivated by, look at me, I'm important and worthy of love. Mm -hmm. Look at me, I'm important and worthy of love. And I'm seeing it so clearly. And I have so much deep compassion because I've acknowledged it in myself. And so I'm seeing it so much in others now. Mm -hmm. And I know it's coming from a place of people just want to be loved. Yep. They really do. That the fancy car in the house and the big boobs and the big biceps and all the whatever the things- it's just a cry for love. Love me. I'm important. I'm special. Look at me. Love me, like and I have so much like, like I have compassion for it because I realize how much of myself has been operating in that wavelength for so long, and you know how like car obsessed I am and crazy all the things I've been buying how, all you know the material things I've been yeah. wanting, and I know since that experience love like I'm just kind of like, okay, who cares?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, who
1: cares? If that wants to happen someday, cool. If it doesn't, cool. I, I just, I, the weight I put on those things just feels like it's dissolved in a way.
0: And what's really interesting listening to you reflect on all of this is that it's really a very simple thing. It's like the lesson that you've heard is you don't have to do anything to be loved. You're loved as you are. Yes. Yes. And imagine if that's really the answer to so many people's problems, and yet people spend their entire lives and maybe never fully realize that. Or they struggle their entire lives through that and pass away in the continued struggle. I mean, right? Like it's it's really fascinating to me why it's so complicated. But I think it's that's part of the mysteries of of being a human being is why are things so hard? Yeah. You know?
1: I mean that's that's the big question, right? It's but perhaps it's a combination of things. Perhaps it's because we're so bombarded with messages in our society from the media that this is what a happy life looks like. And perhaps it's what we grew up with, with you need to get straight A's and hit the game-winning shot and get into the right Ivy League school and what whatever the thing is that maybe our family or parents told us would make us happy and make us fulfilled. And and I just think well, you know so many of these messages it's just externalization it's but it's, it's
0: that all of that stuff has is, is reinforced more than what you're saying is that I think as human beings, whatever we experience and hear and witness over and over and over again, that becomes our norm and to your point, when you know Marion Williamson is sticking out so much as a poll in this political campaign because she's the only one talking about love where everybody rejects that not everybody a lot of people are rejecting that because the norm is not that's not the norm no. no and so maybe these simple things these simple messages about love are harder for people to understand to grok as you said earlier simply because it's not the norm yeah and i think that's that's true of most things is that we go towards what seems easiest and convenient and familiar, yes. and anything that feels hard, uncomfortable, unfamiliar, even if we know that could be better for us, we tend to push ourselves away. So as we wrap this up, yeah. you've said a lot, you've dropped a lot of really wonderful pieces of, of wisdom from your experiences. Is there anything else that you would like to leave the listener with?
1: There is. It can be radically uncomfortable to think about extending unconditional love, acceptance and compassion to someone who worships differently than us, who believes in something different than us, who has a different sexual orientation, who chooses to live their life differently, to eat different than us, who has different political viewpoints. It's extremely uncomfortable to think about extending unconditional love, compassion and acceptance to those kind of people because it is so against what we've been conditioned to do, which is, you're like me, so therefore you're safe. So then I can relax into loving you and extending compassion and acceptance because you're like me. But the thing that Marianne and so many other people and the thing I'm finally having a direct experience of is that the real work is to sit across the table from someone who may be angry just by your presence, who may think, worship, eat, vote, want different things than you, and look at that person deeply in the eyes and say, "Like, I'm going to extend unconditional love, compassion, and understanding and listen to this human being. And if we can move past our radical discomfort in attempting to do that with other people who are so different than us, if we can lean deeply into that discomfort and ex- try to extend unconditional love and understanding... That is going to be a mechanism to heal this planet deeply, deeply, deeply. And And ourselves too. And ourselves. Because
0: if you can extend unconditional love to other people, maybe you'll begin to believe that you can be loved unconditionally.
1: It's reciprocal. Absolutely. It doesn't
0: mean that you're going to get back what you put out, but Mm -hmm. it does help you believe that it's possible.
1: Yeah. And so it's simple, but not necessarily easy. So- yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for receiving this communication, unlike anything I've ever shared uh, in my career <laughs> and on this podcast. And just tremendous gratitude for you, Whitney, opening the space to have this conversation and, and to you, the listener, for having an open mind and an open heart and being a fan of this podcast. We appreciate you.
0: We'd love to hear from you. Again, you can find information about what we've talked about today you can find ways to contact us our, our social media you can leave comments you can do everything over at wellevator.com that's w e l l e v a t r we'd love to hear from you publicly or privately you can email us you can direct message us you can post on our instagram or or comment section we see this as a community as a two way conversation we'd love to have you part of that conversation so Please reach out in whichever way feels right to you. And we really look forward to that. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode, which will be about something else uncomfortable. (laughs) Who knows what that'll be, but it is sure to be interesting. (laughs)